0: Welcome back to Modern World History. This week we have a big topic to cover, World War II. So in many ways, World War II was a continuation of World War I, especially for Europe. Many Germans supported Hitler and the Nazis because he promised to overcome the humiliation that Germany had felt at the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919, where they had been forced to admit their war guilt and to pay massive reparations, and also, of course, to limit the size and the quality of their armed forces. The Nazi regime promised to reverse all of that and to place a powerful new German empire back into Europe as a dominant force on the continent and perhaps even the world. However, World War II can also be described as the result of a worldwide reaction to the Great Depression, which was seen by many people as not only a failure of capitalism to smooth out the business cycles of boom and bust, but also a failure of democracy to do something about it. Fascism and communism seemed to offer the only plausible reactions to this crisis. Remember that although the Nazis and the communists in Weimar, Germany, neither party won a majority in the elections, especially the election of 1932. In 1932, most German voters, the majority of Germans, voted for one party or the other. Basically, a rejection of the liberal democracy in the center, in between those two extremes. And Germany wasn't alone in abandoning democracy and embracing authoritarianism. The same thing happened all over Eastern and Central Europe and Latin America, and uh, most importantly, as we'll see, Japan. In the last chapter, we saw how the Japanese military taking the initiative against the weak objections of Japan's elected government began The conflict that would become World War II, well before shots were ever fired in Europe, by invading and occupying the northern Chinese province of Manchuria in 1931. And again, it's striking how similar the racial beliefs of the Japanese military were to those of the Nazis. The Japanese military believed that the Yamato people of Japan had a special mission to dominate East Asia in the same way that the German Nazis believed that the Aryans of Germany were destined to rule over all of Europe. The belief in national greatness coming out of war and conquest is fundamental to fascist ideology. And you can see it in both Italy and Germany. Uh, While Hitler actually was still consolidating the Nazi regime and rebuilding Germany's armed forces in violation of the Versailles Treaty, Mussolini was already acting. In October of 1935, Italy invaded independent Ethiopia from its colonies of Eritrea and Somalia. The Italians had been defeated by the Ethiopians in 1896, but this time was different. This time, the Italians had air power and poison gas, and Mussolini's army swept through Ethiopia. By the end of 1936, most pockets of Ethiopian resistance had been defeated. In April 1936, the Ethiopian king, Haile Selassie, went to the League of Nations to ask for help But, of course, the League had no army with which to challenge Mussolini's. Emboldened by the ineffectiveness of world opinion and the inability of the League of Nations to do anything, the Italian occupation in Ethiopia was brutal. In February of 1937, responding to an attempted assassination of the new Italian viceroy in the capital city, Addis Ababa, The Italians went on a three-day killing spree to exact vengeance on the Ethiopians. At least 20,000 people were murdered, probably more like 30,000, including Ethiopian intellectuals who had been already imprisoned in wretched conditions. And as we'll see, atrocities like these are typical of the racism that is a key part of these fascist regimes, which thought that using terror was the only way to teach a lesson to these inferior peoples and to control these populations. After losing most of its Latin American colonies in the early 19th century, Spain fell into decades of civil wars. By the time America took the Philippines and Cuba and Puerto Rico away from Spain in 1898 in the Spanish-American War, The Spanish Empire was less stable and actually poorer than several of its former imperial colonies, such as Argentina and Chile. In the early years of the new century, Spanish workers, inspired by socialism and anarchism, began believing that they should take down all the forms of repression that they were facing and liberate the natural socialist and communal tendencies of humanity. Many people found fault also with the Catholic Church, which was receiving government funds supposedly to educate and to provide welfare for the poor, but was ineffective and was seen as very hypocritically enjoying their own riches while surrounded by starving, illiterate, landless peasants, and increasingly urban workers, proletarians. By 1931, though, even the middle class had had enough of Spain's backwardness. The king was forced to abdicate, another victim of the crisis of the Great Depression, and a Spanish republic was established. A new Spanish constitution created a presidential parliamentary government with proportional representation, very much like Weimar Germany. Agrarian reform and limiting the temporal power of the Catholic Church were also big features of this new government's initiatives. And this divided the Spanish people between liberals and socialists who wanted land reform and especially church reform, and conservatives who fought against it. The liberals and the socialists lost control of the government in 1933 when the conservatives won the national elections. Rebellions by radical miners in northern Spain in 1934 led to more repression and to the imprisonment of thousands of people, which led to the formation of a Popular Front movement that then won a very close election in 1936 and created a Popular Front government. The Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, directed the world's communist parties to join the the anti-fascist Popular Front coalition. The Spanish Popular Front government was a coalition of socialists and anarchists and workers' parties and trade unionists which were seeking to preserve the liberal reforms that they had already made and to extend them. However, when the new government again tried to roll out agrarian reforms and again began, began suppressing the church, street fighting and assassinations led to a fascist-supported military coup orchestrated by General Francisco Franco in July of 1936. Although the fascists, who sometimes call themselves nationalists, took control of northern and western Spain, they were stopped in the region around Madrid and Barcelona by socialist and anarchist workers who had been armed by the Republican government and actually also by the Soviet Union. A bloody civil war ensued. Hitler and Mussolini sent weapons, troops, and air support to Franco and supported the fascist side, while Stalin supported the more socialistic republican side. So this was, to some extent, a proxy war for the battle between fascism and socialism. The leading European democracies, Great Britain and France, declared neutrality while the United States, once again, tried to stay out of European disputes in what some people began to call isolationism. Individual British and French and American volunteers, however, did go to Spain to support the Republic and hoped to make Spain, as they called it, the graveyard of fascism. However, even before Franco and the fascists finally defeated the Republic in April of 1939. Stalin had already become disillusioned with the movement and with the European democracies and had pulled out his advisors from Spain and had abandoned the Popular Front strategy. Francisco Franco won the Civil War in 1939 and remained dictator of Spain until his death in 1975. So why this reaction from the winners of World War I? By the 1930s and the Great Depression, the French and the British and the Americans were wondering what winning the Great War had actually meant. The deaths of millions and the wounding of millions more didn't seem to be worth repeating. The Germans, on the other hand, had been humiliated by the peace and were now led by a man and a party that claimed that they would have won if they had just not been stabbed in the back by liberals and social democrats and Jews. And unfortunately, many fascist sympathizers in the democracies somewhat agreed with this assessment, or at least with the belief that corrupt politicians and capitalists as part of a Jewish-led cabal, had been the only ones to benefit from leading their countries into a bloody and useless war. There was truth in the observation that bankers and capitalists had profited the most from the war, but there was absolutely no evidence of a conspiracy. And the fact that public opinion was able to descend into this fantastical conspiracy theory is a testament to the psychological effects of the war, the influenza pandemic, and then the worldwide economic crisis on a fearful and nervous humanity. Hitler's foreign policy was no secret to anyone. He had announced it to the world in his book Mein Kampf in 1923. And the policy was that he would absorb regions around Germany, especially those with German-speaking populations, into his Greater Reich. Lebensraum, living space, for Aryans had to be taken from the people surrounding them, especially from the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe, who were considered to be inferior. In March 1938, Germany annexed Austria, Austria had been Germany's ally in the previous war and was Hitler's homeland, and the Germans had the support of most Austrians in the Anschluss. Uh, The Trap family of the Sound of Music was the exception, really, rather than the rule. Once again, Great Britain and France failed to respond. Hitler then set his sights on the Sudetenland, an ethnically German region of Czechoslovakia, in October 38, the British and the French leaders, alarmed but still anxious to avoid a war, attended a diplomatic conference in Munich where they agreed that Hitler could annex the Sudetenland in return for a promise that that would be as far as he would go, that he would stop all future German aggression. They were desperate to believe that the Fuhrer could be appeased, but in March 1939, German troops rolled into the rest of Czechoslovakia. The world should have seen this coming. The Czechoslovak government hadn't even been invited to the conference in Munich, despite being the only democracy left standing in Central Europe by 1938. They were basically betrayed by the appeasement policies of their fellow democracies. Nor were the democracies moved or motivated really by Nazi excesses against the Jews in Germany. In November of 1938, after a German diplomat had been assassinated by an exiled German Jew in France, the Nazi government allowed a massive outpouring of violence in Germany against Jews and Jewish-owned businesses. German mobs murdered dozens of Jews, publicly humiliated thousands, and burned down their businesses and their synagogues. The Nazi-sponsored violence became known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Many people in the democracies were outraged, thinking that such a pogrom was impossible in a civilized nation like Germany. However, no government took action against Hitler. Nor did any country begin accepting Jewish refugees. Anti-Semitism was still all too common in most of the civilized nations. All of this was happening as Stalin was still supporting the Spanish Republic, hoping that the democracies would join in the struggle against fascism. When they instead appeased Hitler, Stalin concluded that the capitalist nations perceived Hitler as a bulwark against communism, and against the Soviet Union, rather than as an actual threat to their own territories and their interests. So the Soviet premier changed his diplomatic strategy, and on August 23rd, 1939, he signed a non-aggression pact with Germany. By that time, Hitler had set his sights on quote-unquote liberating the German-speaking population in Poland, and of course, liberating their territory. German troops poured across the border on September 1st 1939, which is officially thought of as the outbreak of the war in Europe. The world learned of the secret agreement between Hitler and Stalin to divide Poland three weeks later, when Stalin sent his armies into eastern Poland. Now, what's happening in Asia? As I described in the previous chapter, The government ruling in the name of the Japanese Emperor Hirohito had also shifted toward fascism after the invasion of Manchuria in 1931 and the establishment of the puppet state Manchukuo in northeastern China and Inner Mongolia. Manchukuo provided Japan with the benefits of an imperial colony. Raw materials for Japanese industries that weren't available on the Japanese home islands and a captive market for Japanese goods. The Japanese military also justified their conquest by claiming that they were liberating Asia from European colonialism. Asia for the Asians, you recall. Not all the Asian territories they invaded, however, were happy to become part of the Japanese greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. China was still in the midst of a civil war between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. And the Kuomintang leader and president of the Republic, Chiang Kai-shek, ignored the Japanese threat in northern China until it was too late. Chiang appealed then to the League of Nations for assistance against Japan. The United States supported the Japanese protest, and after a six-month-long investigation, the League decided that Japan was guilty of the invasion and demanded the return of Manchuria to China. The diplomats of the League, of course, had no way to enforce their ruling. Japan ignored it and simply withdrew from the League of Nations. Japanese diplomatic isolation further empowered the radical military leaders who could point to Japanese military success in Manchuria and compare it to the diplomatic failures of the civilian government. The military basically took over Japanese policy. And in the military eyes, the conquest of China would not only provide for Japan's industrial needs, but it would secure Japanese supremacy throughout East Asia. Japan launched a full-scale invasion of China on July 7th, 1937. And again, you'll notice this is still two years before the outbreak of the war in Europe. So Japan invaded China and routed the forces of the Chinese National Revolutionary Army led by Chiang Kai-shek. The broken Chinese army gave up Beijing to the Japanese on August 8th, Shanghai on November 26th, and the nationalist capital Nanjing on December 13th. In the first six weeks after capturing the Chinese capital, Japanese troops killed half the city's population, which had been 600,000. They began by executing 90,000 Chinese army deserters who they despised for surrendering. And then they moved on to civilians. Japanese troops raped up to 100,000 women and girls, and then shot or bayoneted most of them in what's now recognized as one of the worst atrocities of World War II, and indeed of world history. To pacify the rest, the Japanese distributed opium and heroin to the captive population. Like the Italian fascists in Ethiopia and the German Nazis taking Lebensraum from the Slavs in Eastern Europe, the Japanese military felt themselves to be superior to the conquered peoples and believed that the only way to control them would be through terror. When news of the rape of Nanjing first reached the West, many people were skeptical because the violence, once again, was so extreme. However, US missionaries and European businessmen established an international safety zone in Nanjing during the atrocities, which saved 200,000 Chinese civilians, and they also documented the Japanese actions and took photographs. Curiously, the effort was led by a German businessman named John Rabe, who was at the time a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. Eyewitness accounts written by Westerners began being published in American newspapers, along with photographic evidence, and the brutality of Japanese imperialism began to sink in. However, no one was gonna declare war on Japan to save the Chinese. The United States lacked both the will in 1937 and the military power to oppose this Japanese invasion. They even, in fact, continued to sell oil and scrap iron to Japan. The Japanese army had become a technologically advanced force, consisting of 4,100,000 Japanese and 900,000 Chinese collaborators, so 5 million men armed with modern rifles, artillery, armor, and aircraft. By 1940, the Japanese Navy was the third largest in the world, and Actually, because it was so new, it was the most technologically advanced. Still, the Japanese nationalist government lobbied Washington for aid. Chiang Kai-shek's very popular wife, the U.S.-educated Sung Mei-ling, known to most Americans as Madam Chang, led this effort. In contrast to her gruff military leader husband, Madam Chang was charming. She had been educated at Wellesley College, and she knew the American social elite. She was able to use her knowledge of these people and of American culture and values to garner support for Chang and for his government. But although the United States denounced Japanese aggression, it still would take no action. So hoping to halt the invading Japanese army, Chiang Kai-shek adopted a scorched earth policy which he called trading space for time. His nationalist government retreated inland. It burned villages and destroyed dams along the way, and in the process killed more Chinese peasants than the Japanese had killed in the atrocities at Nanjing. Chang established a new capital deep in the interior at the Yangtze River port of Chongqing. Although the Nationalists' scorched-earth policy did hurt the Japanese advance, it also alienated Chinese civilians, most of whom were peasants, and it became a potent propaganda tool for the emerging Chinese Communist Party. As the Nationalists fought for survival, the Chinese Communist Party was busy accumulating supporters and supplies in northwestern Shaanxi province. Mao Zedong recognized the power of the Chinese peasant population and began recruiting from the local peasantry, capitalizing on the outrage caused by both the nationalist government's failure to prevent the Japanese invasion and then its scorched earth retreat. Mao gradually built his force from just about 7,000 survivors of the Long March in 1935 to over 1.2 million members by the end of World War II. Now back to Europe. Two days after the German Wehrmacht invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, Britain and France declared war and began mobilizing their armies. The war planners in the democracies hoped that the Poles would be able to hold out for three or four months to give them time to intervene. Poland fell in three weeks, partly due to the Russian invasion from the east and partly due to a new form of warfare. The German army, which was anxious to avoid the rigid, grinding war of attrition that they had faced in the trenches in World War I, had built a new army for speed and maneuverability. German strategy emphasized the use of tanks and planes and motorized infantry to concentrate forces, smash the front lines, and then wreak havoc behind the enemy's defenses. This strategy was called Blitzkrieg or Lightning War. After conquering Eastern Poland, Stalin's armies shifted focus to the Baltic States, Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia, and then invaded Finland, Stalin was hoping to reestablish the borders of the former Tsarist uh, Russian Empire, which Lenin had had to give away a lot of that territory in the horrible treaty of Brest-Litovsk that he had been forced to sign to prevent Germany from invading Russia during World War I when Russia, because of its revolution, had pulled out of the war. However, the invasion of Finland met stubborn Finnish resistance and, of course, winter. The conflict ended with the Finns losing only a bit of territory on their southeastern borders. Meanwhile, after the fall of Poland, France and Britain began bracing for the inevitable German attack. In April of 1940, the Germans quickly conquered Denmark and Norway in an effort to prevent a British naval blockade, and a blockade if you recall, had killed half a million German citizens in World War I, and the Germans felt it had been key to their loss. The following month, Hitler launched his blitzkrieg into Western Europe through the Netherlands and Belgium to avoid uh, well-prepared French defenses on the French-German border. Poland had fallen in three weeks. France lasted only a couple weeks more. By June, Hitler was posing for photographs in front of the Eiffel Tower. And then, in another propaganda victory, Hitler made the French diplomats sign their surrender in the very same railroad car that had been used for the German surrender at the end of World War I. Germany split France in half, occupying the north and then allowing a collaborationist government to form in Vichy to govern the south and to govern the French colonies. Because if you remember, France was an imperial power and had colonies in places like French Indochina in the Pacific. Vichy was led by the quote-unquote hero of Verdun, Marshal Philippe Pétain, and the Vichy regime tried to reorganize France along authoritarian fascistic lines. Uh, Significant support for Germany by the French right was one of the reasons for Vichy's success, and it may have been one of the reasons for the quick defeat of France in June 1940. Many in France had also abandoned democracy and welcomed the demise of the Third Republic. If the future held a German-dominated Europe, they reasoned, then it would be better for France to collaborate as partners rather than to be dictated to as subjects of a new Nazi regime. This rationalization did fit into a scheme proposed by German propaganda, but in reality, Hitler would never allow and never did allow any type of full partnership from a conquered people. With France under control, Hitler then turned to Great Britain. Operation Sea Lion, the German invasion of the British Isles, required air superiority over the English Channel. From June until October 1940, the German Luftwaffe fought the Royal Air Force for control of the skies over the Channel. And despite having fewer planes, British pilots won the so-called Battle of Britain and saved the British Isles from invasion, prompting the new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, to declare... Never before in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. But if Britain was safe from invasion, it was certainly not immune from ongoing air attacks. Frustrated by losing the Battle of Britain, Hitler began bombing cities and civilians regularly. The Blitz as the British came to know the nightly bombing raids on London, killed at least 40,000 civilians. Other population centers like Bristol, and Cardiff, and Portsmouth, and Plymouth, and Southampton, as well as industrial cities like Swansea, and Belfast, and Birmingham, and Coventry, and Glasgow, and Manchester, and Sheffield were also targeted for heavy bombing. The Royal Air Force defended the skies as best they could, And British industrial production, uh, which had been moved out of the major cities, was mostly unaffected by the air attacks. The British people, encouraged by Churchill, kept calm and carried on. In anger, Hitler and his vice chancellor, Hermann Goering, began a policy of hitting London every day to try to break the will of their enemy. Beginning in September 1940, London was bombed every night for 56 nights, including a large daylight attack on September 15th. British morale failed to break, and the Germans eventually shifted to targeting Atlantic shipping and to bombing port cities in an attempt to starve the enemy out. When the port city of Clydebank in Scotland was bombed in March 1941, only seven of 12,000 houses in the town escaped damage. But the Germans, once again, failed to gain complete air superiority, partly this time due to the deployment of radar, radio detection and ranging, by the British. The technology had been developed in the 1930s and was advanced and finally perfected by Britain in the early 1940s. It would then be offered to the Americans in exchange for financial and industrial support as the two nations strengthened their ties to defend democracy, even before the U.S. entered the war. Nazi ideology considered the English actually as racial equals, and Hitler hoped that in the long run, Britain would eventually join their crusade against Bolshevism and communism. However, Nazi doctrine focused on establishing German Lebensraum in Eastern Europe, enslaving the lesser Slavic peoples to work for the Aryans. Hitler had always planned on breaking his 1939 non-aggression pact with Stalin and on invading the Soviet Union. First, German armies invaded the Balkans and set up puppet regimes in Hungary and Romania, which gave them a wider front to attack the Soviets. And this action was a little bit unplanned and chaotic, actually. Mussolini, trying to play catch-up with his Axis partner, had sent his troops to try to conquer Greece from Albania, which Italy had conquered in April 1939. Uh, The Greeks not only defended themselves, but they pushed the Italians back into Albania, and Hitler had to bail out Mussolini and invade. In June 1941, German forces crossed into the Soviet Union in a massive surprise attack. Operation Barbarossa was the largest land invasion in world history. France and Poland had followed in weeks, and Germany hoped that using the same blitzkrieg tactics in Russia would end the conflict before winter. The German military caught the Red Army completely off guard, and Stalin was strategically unprepared. And so they quickly conquered enormous swaths of land and captured nearly three million prisoners. But Russia was too big. After recovering from the initial shock of the German invasion, Stalin moved his factories east of the Ural Mountains out of range of the Luftwaffe, and he ordered his retreating army to adopt a scorched earth policy, destroying food and rails and shelters to slow the advancing German army. Germany's army split into three forces and reached the gates of Moscow and Leningrad, but their supply lines stretched back for thousands of miles. Soviet infrastructure had been destroyed, and partisans harried the German lines, and then, of course, the brutal Russian winter arrived. Germany had won massive gains, but winter found the German troops exhausted and overextended. In the north, the German army surrounded Leningrad and starved a million and a half people to death in an 827-day siege that has been called a genocide by some historians. In the center, on the outskirts of Moscow, the German army faltered and fell back after a three-month battle that killed a million people. And while Hitler was marching across Europe, the Japanese were continuing their war in the Pacific. In 1939, the United States finally dissolved its trade treaties with Japan. And the following year, America cut off supplies of war materials by embargoing oil and steel and rubber and other vital goods. Instead of being starved into submission, Japan's resource-challenged military just accelerated their invasions across East Asia to find these resources elsewhere and sustain their war effort. The Japanese took control of French Indochina, taking it away from the Vichy regime without much of a fuss, and then they began threatening the Dutch East Indies, now called Indonesia, after the Netherlands were also occupied by Germany. Diplomatic relations between Japan and the United States collapsed. The U.S. demanded that Japan withdraw from China and from the French and Dutch territories, And for its part, Japan considered the oil embargo a de facto declaration of war. The Japanese military planners, believing that American intervention was inevitable and really imminent, planned a coordinated Pacific offensive to try to neutralize the United States and other European powers before they really got moving and provide time for Japan to complete its conquests and fortify its positions. So on the morning of December 7th, 1941, the Japanese launched a surprise attack from their aircraft carriers on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Japanese military planners hoped to destroy enough battleships and carriers to cripple American naval power for years. The Japanese destroyed or seriously damaged eight battleships, actually sank four as well as three cruisers, three destroyers, and 180 aircraft. And they killed 2,403 American servicemen and wounded 1,000. 353 Japanese bombers, fighters, and torpedo planes wiped out nearly the entire U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. Luckily for the U.S. Navy, its aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers and were not at port during the attack. American isolationism fell apart with Pearl Harbor. Japan also assaulted Hong Kong, the Philippines, and American holdings throughout the Pacific at the same time. But it was the attack on Hawaii that threw America into the global conflict. Franklin Roosevelt called December 7th a date which will live in infamy and called for a declaration of war, which Congress approved within hours. Germany and Italy then declared war on the U.S. on December 11th in support of their ally, Japan. So within a week of Pearl Harbor, the United States was at war with the entire Axis, which turned two previously separate conflicts into a true world war. After Pearl Harbor, Japan conquered the American-controlled Philippine archipelago. After running out of ammunition and supplies, the garrison of American and Filipino soldiers had surrendered. The prisoners were then marched 80 miles to a Japanese prisoner of war camp without food, water, or rest. 10,000 people died on the Bataan Death March. Although Japan hoped that the U.S. would be unable to respond quickly, four months after Japan's surprise attack in Hawaii in April 1942, U.S. Air Force planes bombed Tokyo using 16 B-25 medium-range bombers that they managed to launch from an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. The man who planned and led the raid, Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, said of the plan, the Japanese people had been told that they were invulnerable. An attack on the Japanese homeland would cause confusion in the minds of the Japanese people and so doubt about the reliability of their leaders. Doolittle then added, there was a second and equally important psychological reason for the attack. Americans badly needed a morale boost. Well, Americans got their morale boost. But at the same time, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill understood that Germany was the more immediate threat. In 1940 and 1941, the United States had begun providing financial and material support to Great Britain and then to Russia, uh, as it had previously in World War I. Britain stood alone militarily in Western Europe, but the British people refused to be conquered, and American supplies bolstered that resistance. Roosevelt and Churchill met in April 1941 and declared the Atlantic Charter, a pledge to defend freedom and democracy from fascism. After the U.S. officially entered the war, Hitler unleashed U-boat wolf packs into the Atlantic Ocean with orders to sink anything carrying aid to Britain. After losing thousands of merchant ships in 1942 and early 1943, British and U.S. tactics and technology finally won the Battle of the Atlantic. British codebreakers at Bletchley Park, led by Alan Turing, cracked Germany's Enigma radio cryptography codes. The surge of intelligence, which was named Ultra, coupled with naval convoys escorted by destroyers armed with sonar and depth charges, as well as air support, finally gave the advantage to the Allies. By mid-1943, Hitler's Navy was losing ships faster than they could be built. Soon the Wolfpack was sheltering in a defensive crouch in the harbors of occupied Europe. When Hitler renewed his invasion on the Soviet Union in the summer of 1942, he focused on conquering the breadbasket and the oil fields of Southern Russia. The Blitzkrieg had brought rapid success, but again got too far ahead of its supply lines. Although the strategy included sophisticated tanks, and armored troop carriers, and dive bombers, the Germans were still using horse-drawn wagons to bring up food and ammunition and fuel and spare parts to the advancing armies. As the advance slowed, Axis armies arrived at the new industrial city on the Volga River, Stalingrad. Hitler badly wanted to conquer and wipe out Stalin's namesake city, and of course the Soviet premier was just as determined to defend it. In late 1942, the two armies bled themselves nearly to death in a destroyed city, fighting house to house in a five-month battle that killed two million people on both sides. Stalin placed his trust in General Georgi Zhukov, who planned a brilliant Soviet pincer move, cutting off the German Sixth Army in Stalingrad. When his army was forced to surrender in February 1943, Hitler was apoplectic with anger, and his generals began to doubt that he any longer had the strategic brilliance he had showed in previous years. The Germans planned to follow up with renewed attacks to get at Soviet oil, but their battle with the Red Army at Kursk turned the course of the war definitively to the Soviets. Zhukov uh, once again correctly guessed the German strategy, and he fortified Kursk while massing armies to the north and south. After the greatest tank battle in world history, Zhukov unleashed another pincer move and the Germans retreated from the battle as quickly as they could to evade it. The Red Army then began rolling westward, putting the Germans permanently on the defensive for the rest of the war. More than any other ally, the Soviet Union was most responsible for defeating Hitler but at a huge sacrifice. 25 million Soviet soldiers and civilians died in what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. And actually roughly 80% of all German casualties during the war came on the Eastern Front where they were fighting the Soviets. We're only about halfway through the war here, so I've got a lot more to say, but I'm going to have to cut this off now and continue tomorrow. So thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.